Welcome to Love, Lead, Listen, a podcast from Alpha Gamma Delta. I'm your host, Emily Bice. Join us as we discuss topics that affect women of today and examine the ways that we can be women with purpose. Welcome back to Love, Lead, Listen. Today's guest is Dr. Psyche Williams-Horson. She is an associate professor and chair of the Department of American Studies at the University of Maryland College Park. She is a material culturist who examines the lives of African-Americans living in the United States from the late 19th century to the present. Her research explores the ways in which Black people engage in their material worlds, especially with food and food cultures, as well as historical legacies of race and gender misrepresentations. Dr. William Forson's work has included several books, including Taking Food Public, Redefining Foodways in a Changing World, and the award-winning Houses Out of Chicken Legs, Black Women, Food, and Power, as well as in many journals and book chapters. Her expertise has been featured in a number of media outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, Radio New Zealand, Irish Radio, and MSNBC, and many more. Psyche received her bachelor's in English, African-American studies, and women's studies from the University of Virginia, her master's in American studies from the University of Maryland, and her PhD in American studies from the University of Maryland. She is also a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Psyche, welcome. Hi, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here today. We're so excited to have you. So your research focuses on food. How did you decide to study food history? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So it came about in two very different ways. Um, I was in grad school, obviously, and I was reading a turn of the century, so a a novel written in 1900 that had been republished as part of a series of African-American women uh, artists. It came out, uh, it was written, uh, published by Oxford University Press and Henry Louis Gates, major African-American literary historian, helped to research this group of of works. So I was reading uh, one of the novels and uh, it started talking about, uh, it was, it takes place in a black boarding house um, in, in Boston right, in 1900. And so I, I became really intrigued by the detail with which the author presents Black interior lives, right? Um, and so one of the things that happens is she talks about the food. And, uh, you know, so you had dainties and teas and things because so much of, of African-American life for free Blacks and then newly freed uh, Blacks of means took place in the parlor, right? So all of this then led me to study more about foods of African-Americans. But what really sort of cemented that this was the way that I should go, I was researching for one of my professors at the time, who is a a scholar of Jewish uh, foodways, and she's a historian. And she had me research peddlers. Jewish peddlers, there was a particular moment that I was I was looking into, and I came across this term foodways, and I had never heard that term before. And so I began to wonder what it was, of course, but then more importantly, did, did Black people also have foodways? And so that literally is what started me down this path and, you know, took a lot of different turns and, and whatnot. But but that, those are the two sort of things that came together to to direct me in uh, in this in this study. So, what is a foodway? <laughs> foodways. It's a term that was uh, came up 
a folklorist, Jay Anderson, started using this term. And essentially what it means is it's not just the food. It's the food event. It's the food preparation. It's the way in which we acquire food and uh, how we dispel food and how we present. It's the whole constellation of talking about food. So because so often as a material culturalist, I study the material world. We think, for example, food is just a food, but it's not, right? It, it's situated in, in so many different layering contexts. And so that's really what food ways encompasses, right? Yeah. So you mentioned that you're interested in specifically Black food ways. What did you find about that? What are the historical and cultural parts of Black food ways? Right. Well, you know, so there's two things. I study African-American people specifically, but Black people in general, right? And so let me make that distinction. African-American people, by and large, were born in America. However, Black people might encompass those from the Caribbean, those from the Dominica, uh, from the Dominion, uh, Dominican, um, those who are throughout the African diaspora. So they could be Africans in France. They could be Africans in Paraguay. It could be. So I'm interested in both, but it's a two-layered um, strand, right? Because, and I say that, and I make it very clear because in the United States, a lot of things that we, around food that we assign to African-Americans, because we don't as a society or society doesn't make a distinction between African-American and Black, you end up collapsing everyone. And those food cultures are not the same, right? You have a continent in, on Africa, you have a continent, you have so many different cultures and you have so many different and similar uh, food cultures, right? But that's not the same as, for example, in the American South. It's not the same as African-Americans who are eating in Detroit, African-Americans who are eating in Utah, African-Americans who are eating in Florida. So I make those distinctions because, um, because they're important. Because otherwise what happens is you end up collapsing African-American people in, as one, and we're not. Right. Just like you have many ethnicities of other races, you have many ethnicities of, of blackness. And so that's that's a start to the to answering your question. What did I find out that you have to make these distinctions? Because if you don't, then you get this very monolithic one way of looking at black culture. Right. Black expressive culture of which food is a part of that expressive culture. So one of the first things I found out is that. There are certain foods that we tend to associate with African-American culture. And those foods tend to be what we define as soul food, right? So fried chicken, fried fish, ham, you know, mac and cheese, collard greens, all of that. Okay. And so that's a very, um, a very common set of beliefs. But when you start digging farther, as you have done in your own, you know, research for your BA, you begin to find that there are very there are a lot of different stories, right? So even for you, uh, for example, being if you if I may from Alabama, I'm originally from Virginia. Our food cultures are going to be similar. We're East Coast. We're along the sort of same travel trajectory, um, but our food ways may be very different from say someone in Florida. 
because they're on they're in coastal areas, so they have access to alligator and other kinds of uh, foods that would come from seas, oceans, water bodies, right? That's going to also be very different from someone from Kansas who's landlocked, if you will, right? And so you're going to see more beef and grains and things of that nature, chicken and, and so forth. So it, it that was one of the, that's at the gist of a lot of my work is understanding that food cultures are very complex and multi-layered, you know, and that the most sort of eureka moment is when you talk to people from other regions and other parts of the world and other parts of the United States and find out what they eat. And you're like, oh, wow, I never would have suspected that. Um, when you talk some more and you learn, oh, okay, that's a whole different culture. I'll just tell you a quick story. I was going, it was just before Thanksgiving, I was in graduate school. I was with a, a colleague and we were riding to a conference and she said, what are you going to have for Thanksgiving? Or I think I may have asked her and she said, well, you know, the usual turnips, spaghetti, turkey, and you know, she named a number of other things. She said, what are you going to have? And I and she said, lasagna so forth. And so I said, um, well, um, you know, collard greens, mac and cheese, turkey, maybe some fried chicken or beef or what have you. And she said, where are the turnips? Lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that would not ever be at my Thanksgiving table unless someone brought it. And she said, you know what? That never occurred to me. But she's Italian. So to her, it makes more sense for there to be lasagna, more Italian based foods. Absolutely. So to bring that this question home, you know, we just have to be mindful and also curious, right? Because even when I worked at Western Maryland, in Western Maryland, as an African-American person, I went to an African-American Thanksgiving dinner and they had sauerkraut and they had cabbage. Not my, I was, I was not surprised, but I was not familiar with that particular addition because they're on the border of Western Pennsylvania or Southwestern Pennsylvania. So much more of a German influence. So it, it's, we have to be careful when we make assumptions about people and cultures is, is to answer your point. I think that's a very good point. And a lot of times we do make those assumptions about people and cultures, and those aren't necessarily true assumptions. No, most often they're not true at all. Or if they're true, or if a stereotype exists about them, there's an element of truth. But it's, you know, we've, we've sort of exaggerated, you know, those points. So just being clear about that and being mindful is, 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 is a part of being human. Absolutely. I'm curious, when we think about food, it's something that a lot of people just think of, oh, we eat it, you know, you think of your major dish, but it plays a part in our culture. Mm -hmm. And culture obviously takes part in history. In what way is food a part of Black or African-American history? Oh, well, you know, <clears throat> Black people eat, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so just like, you know, any other culture, we have various food cultures, right? Prior to coming uh, to the, I guess what you call now the New World, African and Caribbean uh, peoples live very vibrant lives, right? Um, and uh, in, in the, on the West African coast, at least, many of them were agriculturalists. Um, this is one of the reasons they were um, brought to, brought and enslaved, right? Because 
for one, they had agricultural knowledge, their bodies could withstand a particular humid, hot climate. They were considered uh, less than human and so forcible labor, and they were economic enterprise. And yet our food cultures developed over time. We adapt. You know, we've always adapted. We amalgamate. We we mixed with Europeans. We mixed with um, indigenous and native peoples. Um, and we learned and and we learned how to survive, but also we learned what we could eat, right? And so uh, in my new book on food policing and food shaming, one of the things I remind people is that contrary to what you hear, that all Black people eat, eat or ate the lowest cuts of meat and they were given a peck of meal on their plantation. Yes, this was in fact true. Um, and some plantations, large and small, because we tend to have a gone with the wind sort of vision, right? But sometimes when you talk about a plantation, you're talking about a farm, right? And the people um, on that farm who were enslaved um, ate the same things that the people who lived on the farm and enslaved them ate, right? And because you, you only have five people on the farm, right? Um, and so, um, it, so you've got that piece. Then you have those who on some um, plantations and farms were, enabled, were able to have their own small garden plots, right? And then you had some um, who were starved to death, but it wasn't, it wasn't, um, that was not a good business practice, right? Because this was your labor, right? So you wanted to be sure to to uh, to feed the people who were helping to feed and line your pockets. But the point I want to make very quickly is that enslaved people were surrounded by woods and foliage. So we would be unimaginative to not think that they did indeed use the forest to supplement, you know, what they ate. So, wow, you name it, anything, any critter that moved through the forest right? Any, any animal that ate grasses and berries and nuts and so forth, you know, you, you did that. You ate what you could to, to augment whatever meager rations you were given. And so our histories of adaptation start before we reach the shore, but certainly once we reach the shore. What you're saying reminds me of what you mentioned earlier about it's not a monolithic culture and it's not a monolithic history almost. There's different, different things, different things happening. That's right. Because one of the things too that we forget is you had Muslims who were enslaved, right? Um, and so to assume that we only ate pork as enslaved people would absolutely be erroneous because the data shows and the scholarship shows that most Muslims continue to practice once they were captured and enslaved. So if you're a practicing Muslim, you're not eating pork, but you have to figure out a way to sustain yourself so that you can live. Um, and so what were you doing, right? What were you eating? And so that's just one small example. Another example um, has to do with, for example, migrants who left Texas um, as one scholar talks about, and went to California. Because the other piece about understanding African-American food culture is knowing migration patterns and strands. 
most folks from Mississippi, for example, migrated to Chicago, most African-Americans. Those who left um, rural Virginia, North Carolina, that whole eastern seaboard came up to, for example, Richmond, uh, uh, Virginia, or you came to Washington, or you went to Baltimore, uh, or maybe on up to New Jersey, New York, you know, along those lines. Those who were in Texas in in the sort of Southwest headed out to California, Kansas, you know, um, maybe up to Seattle. So knowing that it will also help you to understand why not all food culture is the same, right? Because if you came from the Southwest and ended up in Portland, you may not be eating, you know, again, fried chicken, you know, butter beans and corn and, and, and so forth. You're eating, you may be eating a lot more of a meat-based diet. So those pieces are really important to understand when you start talking about African-Americans not being, and our food cultures not being monolithic. So do you think that historical food trends, when we're looking back at all these patterns and cultures, do you think those historical trends and patterns influence the food that we consume today? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, most cultures still, well, we celebrate these traditions. We just talked about Thanksgiving, but there are also a lot of food traditions around Christmas. And um, in African-American communities, for example, we have Kwanzaa, um, which, you know, began in the 60s and, you know, has various cultural moments in history. Um, has been celebrated more than others, but we certainly now in today's society we recognize Kwanzaa as the you know first seven days after Christmas, so it starts on the twenty sixth and it ends on um, January first, and there are seven principles that go along with it, and um, there's a uh, a ritual that is um, is performed. So lots of times you'll hear around the holidays or in preparation for the holidays. Folks will say, African-American people, for the most part, will say, are we doing Kwanzaa this year? Are we celebrating Kwanzaa? Um, and so because there's a, a, a preparatory process, right? But so you'll have you'll have Kwanzaa. Then, of course, for New Year's, folks have different traditions. Some people do a, a, a seafood um, celebration. Um, you know, some people do fish. Some people do lots of black folks do black eyed peas and collard greens and, you know, and a lot of Southern people do that. Right. Um, this year being in food line in a new area, I was like, Oh my God, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find my black eyed peas. <laughs> and kind. I mean, are they frozen? Are they canned? Are they fresh? You know? And so it was really interesting. And you know, when you, so you can find out things about your community. If you go into the grocery store on new year's Eve, and there's lots of black eyed peas there still and no collard greens in the store. If there's lots of black eyed peas, then you're asking yourself, do the people in this community celebrate this particular food tradition? If there are no collard greens and you can ask and if they say, no, we don't stock them, then you have your answer. Right. Because in some cases you'll go and they'll be like, I, I, I saw lines of people at the food line saying, you don't have any more collard greens. <laughs> We're in a panic, you know. Um, and so, but but nowadays it's whether you can get fresh, frozen, um, can um, to celebrate the ritual. Valentine's Day we celebrate rituals, right? Um, and so on and so on. In the summertime, for a lot of African Americans, you have family reunions, 
right? That are are very formal kinds of events, multi-generational, well-planned, multi-day events. So, you know, yes, the history does always inform the present, always. Um, As much as we like to um, deny that it does, it it absolutely speaks to, to today. I think that's an interesting point of no matter how much we want to deny that the history influences the present, it does. Yeah, we live in a cipher. I mean, things go around. Things are in a a cycle, right? All the time. Nothing, very little of what we see and experience today have we like never seen before. So, so yes, the history always um, at some point, because even now we're making history. So 20, 30 years from now, when someone says, well, you know, did they always talk about food and so forth? Yeah, because it's so, you know, you'll see that this is not a new phenomenon. The food movement that we're living in right now, organic, fresh, clean, this is not new. Okay. This is another wave of a food movement, right? You had the 60s, you had the counterculture movement, and then even earlier in the 20s and 30s, how do we think we got cereal? and vitamin, you know, fortified cereals and milk and uh, BMI and all of these things that tell us what we're supposed to do. Because there have been food movements throughout history. Absolutely. It's a cycle, like you said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we're now at the point in our program where I like to ask all of our guests this one question, and I'm very interested to hear your answer. What is your purpose? That's life's essential question. And I have asked Rick Warren to show me and tell me many a time from Saddleback Church, what is your purpose? You know, that's a, it's a, it's a very good question because as, you know, as I look back over my life and the 30 so years that brought me to graduate school, it was a serendipitous route, right? And so I'll, I'll share this with your listeners. When I left undergrad from UVA, which was one of the top institutions in the U.S., not to mention always in the top 10 of public universities, I clearly had a very good education. And yet, and I was very active on campus. I had done a thousand different leadership roles and had a gazillion interviews, and yet I didn't have a job. And it was very disheartening. It was very disappointing. Um, And so I left there not knowing what was my purpose, right? I'm from a family of educators. um, And my mom had always said, take some education courses so you have something to fall back on. You know, okay. But I didn't. And um, what I did do was go home back to my hometown, rural Virginia, and where we have a Um, community college. So I taught there for a year. And then uh, two years later, I ended up at the local, one of the local universities where I was telling you, I, you know, was a resident director in the young ladies uh, residence hall for sororities. And then from there, it took me to Connecticut where I did similar kinds of work, but I continued to teach at the community college. And then ultimately I was, um, because I was a little older than the undergraduates at the time, I started helping folks with their English papers. And that's when I hit a brick wall. And I said, you know, I like this, but I can't go any farther because I don't know any more than they do, than they know. So I can't really help them in their analyses and ways of thinking about the material. And so I'm, I'm, I'm getting to the point and I'm going to wrap up for you. But uh, it, 
this was at the late 80s, early 90s. And this was a time that was considered what you would call a watershed moment in Black feminist thought. Lots of African-American women were reclaiming voices of African-American women 100 years ago who we knew nothing about. And so there was this major resurgence. And that was when Black feminist work started coming out. And so I got in at a very critical moment. Alice Walker had um, reintroduced us to Zora Neale Hurston and, and Bell Hooks was writing and the Combahee Collective was on board. So anyhow, the point is, if it wasn't for those things happening, I never would have read that 19th century novel. Most likely. If I hadn't read that novel, I might not have been interested in food. And if I had not have connected with my professor and been her research assistant, I may never have written Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs. And so I think that I have things to say. My work has opened up some different conversations around food. Thank you for having me here. And so I think the more we, I get this word out and share with people, hopefully the more I'm helping people to see other people's humanities, other people's complexities, and just overall to broaden our awareness of how we're very, very different. We have some similarities, but we're very different people. And taking the time to really get to know us, even through food, would really go a lot farther toward helping us to understand who we are as people. And so I think that would be, I, I would say, my purpose. That's a wonderful purpose to have. Yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an educator, I think is, is obviously it's my purpose, um, where I didn't necessarily see myself as so. Well, thank you so much for coming in today and talking with me all about your work and your research. You've made me think of food in a wholly different way. Great. Thank you for having me. Love, Lead, Listen is recorded and produced at Alpha Gamma Delta International Headquarters and is generously funded by the Alpha Gamma Delta Foundation. Episodes are released every two weeks, so make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss out on any of our episodes. If you like this show, make sure to rate us five stars on iTunes, and don't forget to share it with your friends. If you have an idea for a future episode or any other feedback, send us an email at podcast at alphagammadelta.org. I'm your host, Emily Bice, and that's all for today. See you next time.